You've heard about them in sermons. You've seen their name in dozens of Christian-made fantastical book back covers. And now I'm not saying that today's monster for Monster Month was Nephilim, but it was Nephilim. Join us for this giant controversy. These critters get such a quick cameo in Genesis 6, but uh, for many Christian speculations, they get a top-starring role. Why? Who were these critters? Why do they appear in so many Christian-made fantasy novels? And according to scripture, do they even matter in the grand scheme of the gospel? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the giant podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real world that Jesus calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher and the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I like to consider myself a son of God, so now I'm worried that my physical son could be a Nephilim. And this is episode 135, Why Are Some Christians So Curious About Nephilim? This is part of our Monster Month series. So far, we have had zombies, vampires, and mad scientist monsters. Is this the end? You can just see that uh, end screen there with the black and white background and the words the end and then dot, 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 question mark while you hear the cackling in the background. I'm guessing we will have some B-movie sequels to this series as we go forward, uh, either next October or at other times of the year. Share your favorite monster with us. Did we cover it? Do we need to cover it? Uh, Maybe that needs to go next on our lineup. In just a moment, uh, we're going to stop by the concession stand for some giant fun-sized snacks, Zach, and it's not even Halloween. Yeah, Stephen, I just realized we haven't talked about Leviathan, one of the other monsters of the Old Testament in the book of Job, and so maybe that should be an upcoming uh, Monster Month sequel or special bonus feature. I am partial to Leviathan because, spoiler alert, it's basically Godzilla. Godzilla (laughs) is in Job chapter 41 pro tip it's an amazing description and once you read it and you look at pictures of godzilla you realize yep yep this is basically the same critter uh there are monsters in the bible we're not going to deny that as we go forward but there are a few things we do want to stipulate as we move into the concession stand first though let's stop by our top sponsor for this episode our cover sponsor once again is enclave publishing And their recent release, a fantasy from author Sharon Hink called Dream of Kings, The Future Never Sleeps. In the glacial nation of Norgard, Jolin the Dreamteller serves every seeker, whether peasant or high lord. Though she loves using her gift, she struggles to navigate the corrupt and dangerous court and the jealousies of the Gildegard. When an old man's nightmare imparts a dire warning, Jolin realizes her entire nation is in danger. But before she can sound the alarm, she is betrayed by the guilds and sold into slavery in a rival kingdom far to the south. As a slave in a foreign land, at first Jolin can't see beyond her singular focus. Return home to warn Norgard of the coming calamity. After facing new dangers, making new friends, and forgiving old wrongs, she must fulfill the purposes the provider has set before her. Only then can she face a decision that could cost her the man she loves, her calling, and her freedom, all to save a people who abandoned her. Lorehaven actually reviewed Dream of Kings, and we said Sharon Hink's novel Dream of Kings fantastically reimagines the biblical Joseph narrative, drawing readers into a vivid world of political intrigue and faith struggles. Learn more atop our show notes for episode 135 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, I'm hungry. 
The concession stand is a bursting with goodies because when you talk about monsters, that can raise a lot of fears and that can raise a lot of morbid fascinations. So let's uh, whip the giant cloth uh, covering this monstrosity of a concession stand and get to all of these. First of all, uh, Zach and I have been planning this episode for quite a while, so at times we may have us a little mini monster brawl over the topic. That's intentional. Uh, there's going to be no hurt feelings at all by the end of this. Uh, if he takes an adversarial position or if I'm feeling a little snarkier, tis all in good fun. Uh, let them fight, uh, speaking of Godzilla. But please also be forewarned. Somehow, I, Stephen, personally, not speaking for anybody else at Lorehaven, uh, does not reflect the contents of this station or its management. I am sick of Nephilim. There, I said it. Uh, I tire of the critters. I see them a lot. Uh, in fact, you, you were tired of it nine years ago. Exactly. You wrote a whole article about it. 2013, I wrote a whole article about it. We'll put that link in the old show notes. Uh, and so I'm trying to be kind, but lots of Christian fans seem really interested in the critters. Uh, there's a job hazard for me, uh, being Lorehaven publisher. I just happen to see a lot of uh, Christian made fantasy books that always seem to have Nephilim lurking somewhere in the back cover descriptions. I'm surprised that the Sharon Hinks book doesn't have a Nephilim in there. Thank you. Enclave publishing. I think we've well covered Nephilim in some other books and maybe that's your thing. You know, I want to respect that. I really want to respect other people's uh, fantasy preferences. But I also want to be honest about mine. Uh, so if you're new to this show, by the way, uh, we at Lorehaven, we do support biblical speculation. We support fantasy. I like fantasy, even fantastical stuff that is based on biblical narratives. For instance, uh, unlike some grumpy folks out there after the season three trailer for The Chosen, we tend to like The Chosen around here. And some of the criticisms of that show can be pretty silly. Uh, and they don't even put Nephilim in there. <laughs> They're all in the up and up and they get some criticism. So, of course... Nephilim are due for some uh, critical thinking. I will note, however, that The Chosen has a firmer foundation for speculating about, hey, what could it have been like to be a, an apostle and uh, discover Jesus to follow? They've got four whole books of the Bible about Jesus Christ to explore. Whereas if you're going to speculate about the Nephilim, if you are focusing on scripture, you have four verses about the Nephilim before the flood, uh, not including a little cameo mentioned later on, which we'll talk about in this show. And I will be asking in this uh, uh, episode, should we base so much speculation on just a few verses? Faithful listener, you've probably seen there are some folks out there, including authors we like and support, and there's some you know, crank YouTube videos and such as well, who seem to make a cottage industry about speculating uh, of, about those weird biblical pictures like you can get a little too much into the monsters that are at the margins of the bible uh and are not at the heart of the story some of the folks by the way who speculate about nephilim have even been on this show uh let's come right here and say it uh, brian gadawa graced us with his presence so we had a really awesome episode back uh, when we were just starting fantastical truth in 2020 i uh, will definitely commend that episode uh he's a great guy but if i do step on some uh, clawed creature toes here uh, just know again it's not personal. Uh, lastly, at least for my part, uh, Zach may have some concessions to add here. Uh, I am going to assume some truths about biblical canon and textual criticism, uh, at least in chapters one and two of the show. When you talk about something called the Book of Enoch, and if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that that's not among the 66 books in the Protestant canon. Uh, we just have to disclaim that, you know, we can't get into uh, whether it was some council somewhere that decided the canon of scripture and why they left out certain books and how we are to respond to certain books. Yeah. So my main concession here is I'm not at all approaching this topic as an expert. I'm an explorer. I'm a learner. 
I'm very curious about this because, yes, I've seen some of the same books, Stephen, you've talked about it, but I haven't dived into them quite as much as you have or, or been assaulted by them or, or whatever it is. But it's a fascinating topic. I think it comes down to some interesting interpretations that are themselves, either way you go, are very speculative because we don't have a lot of context for either way you look at this. We'll talk about that, but I, I think the um, the main concession I would say here is let's not be too quick to offer a supernatural explanation just because the Bible is supernatural. On the other hand, it can be very tempting to go to a naturalistic or materialistic explanation because that's the age we live in. We live in a secular age. That's a really good point. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I agree. So I, I find myself in it, feeling some very odd tension with this topic because when you, when you talk about the origin of the Nephilim and the sons of God, it's like, well, why am I interpreting it one way or the other? Like, what's my presumption here? And so I, I think we have to sort of analyze our own presumptions in coming into this topic. That is a fantastic point, and I wish I'd said it first. I do want to expand on that a little bit. I think that those uh, presumptions are based on where we're coming from, and I think that means, once again, it's spooky season, and sometimes the worst haunt you have to beware is the church back home. Uh, that evil villain lurking in the shadows, that haunted building uh, over there on Main Street uh, that may not have treated you in the best way while you were growing up. Maybe when you got older, uh, you started assuming certain things about the church, capital T, capital C. It's always the church, never just American evangelicals or you know the certain denomination or the certain church. You, know, you project it outward to the bigger group because it feels better, feels bigger. The church back home, you think, may have taught against uh, supernatural explanations for things. They were too Western, they were too modern, too scientific, too materialist. Or maybe the church back home was always making everything supernatural and they weren't aware of real life constraints and they didn't care about material things in the way that Christians should. I think there may be some reactions in here just because we are creatures of story and we're limited by our own stories and the way that we see the world. Not that Zach or I could claim to be outside that. I think the only uh, being that could be outside all of that is God himself. But it does help, I think, uh, to be a little self-aware about that. Secondly, yeah, I'm with you, Zach. I'm an explorer uh, here. I take no firm position on the Nephilim, and I also want to be aware of that natural, supernatural balance. Yeah, and I, I tend to be very open to supernatural interpretations of the Bible, and especially when it comes to things like spiritual warfare. But I think one of the dangers of that is that it can lead to passivity in your spiritual life, <laughs> oddly enough. When you consider yourself just sort of a victim of supernatural forces and, and you're sort of this chess piece that's getting moved around the board, um, it can make it hard to sort of take responsibility for your own Christian life. And so you have to be on the guard against that. But this is a fun topic because when we talk about Nephilim, we're talking about actual physical creatures. So what were they? Where did they come from? So let's jump into this. Yeah. Oh, real quick. One, one more concession. This does overlap with the whole spiritual warfare theme. I just realized. And uh, I have mixed feelings about that. And oddly enough, so does Frank Peretti. So I'm in really good company. We love us some Frank <laughs> Peretti around here. We're actually going to have a, a retro Frank Peretti review coming up the Friday before Halloween. But some uh, Christian materials that I've seen like do tend to err on the side of this reality isn't the real reality. And there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a spiritual reality out there. And that's where the real battle is. Mm -hmm. uh, and then folks will say, like, for example, some Christian authors will say, oh, I, I wrote a book. I was inspired by Frank Peretti. I wrote a book. 
And then I pick up the book description and I start to read and I say, so-and-so is an angel. And I'm like, well, that's where you go wrong because that's not how Peretti started. Peretti starts with the human beings. He grounds his story in the real material reality so that you believe, okay, this could happen. And then he also peels back the veil, at least in the darkness books, and he shows you what's going on behind the scenes. So Peretti offers some balance that I think uh, some newer Christian creators could learn from if we are to carry forward the Peretti legacy uh, in Peretti's stead, because he himself has long since moved on. Anyway, that's another episode. Yeah, Zach, you're setting me up here. So let's go to chapter one. What does the Bible say about Nephilim? First of all, I think we've got our pronunciation right. Is it Nephilim? Is it Nephilim? Is it Nephilim? I don't know. Uh, you Greek <laughs> and Hebrew guys out there, just let us know. I'm pretty sure I've heard the smart people pronounce it Nephilim. Nephilim and Lime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, neph- Nephilim and Lime. That's funny. <laughs> yes. Oh, so let's open the Word of God to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. Uh, these are the four verses I was talking about, and these are the keystone of our discussion, okay? This is all that the Bible says about Nephilim, apart from a brief mention in the book of Numbers, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That's Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Before we evaluate that as best we can, here's that other brief reference from the book of Numbers. And by the way, Star Wars fans, uh, you know there's a name origin here in this biblical text. Uh, The context is that uh, Caleb and Joshua, the only two spies, got back uh, from the land of Canaan. Uh, the other spies were very concerned about the giants in the land, and Caleb and Joshua were not. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy, brackets, the land of Canaan, close brackets, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spun out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. That's Numbers chapter 13, verses 30 through 33. That's it. That's everything the Bible says about Nephilim by name. Yeah, and Stephen, I I think it's very clear what this is referring to, because it says the Nephilim were on the earth before and after the flood. So how did they get on the earth after the flood, if the flood wiped out everyone else? Well, it's clear. It's the word on. They were on the earth, and then they weren't, and then they were again. So it's clear that they were aliens, and that they were just in orbit. Uh, during the flood, and then they came back. So case closed. There we go. Oh, snap. The Nephilim were aliens. Audiences love aliens. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> saying it was Nephilim, but it was definitely Nephilim. Actually, the illustration <laughs> I made for a, an article a long time ago has the ancient aliens guy meme itself in ancient meme format. In Genesis 6, sons of God and Nephilim? I don't know. Therefore, demons. <laughs> and aliens are demons anyway. So right. yeah, case, case closed. Case closed. Anyway. So let's move to our comm station. No, let's not, actually. (laughs) We're going to be here for at least another hour. I can already tell because I'm a prophet. Uh, So in later Old Testament books, I mean, it's true. You've got this commentary at the end of of the Genesis 6, 1 through 4 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. So you get this commentary from the future. The narrator is aware of events, I think, after the flood, those days being the days before the flood, it seems to me, and, and also afterward. Well, only a few people survived the flood because I do believe it was a global flood. That was the whole point. Wipe out all of sinful man on the earth, reboot, nuke it from orbit with water and start over something that God has promised never to do again. But somehow then the Nephilim or something like them came back, some kind of mighty men of renown. Just note what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say the Nephilim were evil. It doesn't say they were aliens. It doesn't say they were demons. It doesn't mention Satan. It doesn't mention conspiracies. It doesn't mention specifically fallen angels. Now, it doesn't mean they're not involved because there's other stuff and we'll get into that. I'm just saying that here, the emphasis in Genesis 6 is mere basic historical recounting. Uh, in the later Old Testament books, though, uh, you do hear about the giants. Like, and it doesn't say here that they were giants. The giants uh, seem to be maybe related to the sons of Anak. Uh, that gets uh, more into the genealogies of Scripture and how those actually matter. Uh, the giants fight for the Philistines. And uh, Goliath, of course, and at least one other giant were killed by David and or his mighty men. And the same words in English, mighty men here, are describing both Nephilim and uh, David's soldiers. So it's kind of a duality there. You know, David had his mighty men, uh, his uh, gang of superheroes running around uh, Israel, uh, making a high point in the Israelite culture. But yeah, nothing here about evil creatures. As far as we know, Goliath was the only evil son of Anak, uh, if he's part of that line. Uh, and on first reading, it could just be describing a group uh, in the book of Genesis. It's like, oh, by the way, yeah, Nephilim. Yeah, that was a thing back then. But let's move on now. Let's talk about how God's going to judge the earth with the flood. And it doesn't say that the Nephilim were unique evil or were corrupting man or any of that. That idea comes from other sources. And on first reading, it seems that the, uh, the cowardly spies in Numbers 13 are likening uh, the beings that they saw to the Nephilim. Like it's describing that, it's quoting them. The Bible doesn't say, oh, yes, they were of the same line or the same kind as the creatures before the flood. Well, the flood wiped out all the Nephilim, uh, unless uh, Shem, Ham, or Japheth uh, had any on board that they stowed away. I, I doubt that that's uh, at all part of what we're looking at. Or they were in orbit, but yeah. Yes. Oh, totally. They have their own uh, spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that, the idea given, by the way, uh, in, in the commentary of at least one study Bible, the ESV study Bible, uh, is worth reading. It says, quote, Nephilim, the meaning of this term is uncertain. It occurs elsewhere in the OT, only in Numbers 1333, where it denotes a group living in Canaan. If both passages refer to the same people, then the Israelite spies are expressing their fears of the Canaanites by likening them to the ancient men of renown. Although in Hebrew, Nephilim means fallen ones, the earliest Greek translators rendered it gigantes, giants. This idea may have been mistakenly deduced from Numbers 13.33. One must be cautious about reading it back into the present passage. The Nephilim were mighty men or warriors, and as such may well have contributed to the violence that filled the earth. See Genesis 6.13. That was the ESV study Bible note. Uh, I'm not taking a position here, even though we've just stepped all over probably your uh, Nephilim fan theory, uh, faithful listener. Uh, Zach, that's uh, the ESV study Bible we're reading, and that's some of my casual thoughts on these biblical texts. Uh, what do you see when we read these texts? Yeah, I think there are two terms in both these passages that 
form the core of the disagreements about Nephilim. The first term is sons of God, and then the second term is mighty men, or, right. or even or even giants that we get from the Numbers passage. And I think you're right that we can't read giants back into Genesis because it appears in Numbers, although there is a connection because they're saying the Nephilim were there before and after the flood, and then the spies are saying, hey, the Nephilim are there. So I think it's possible those are the same kind of people. But what does that mean to be giants, first of all? So I think the interesting thing here is some people are interpreting this literally and saying these are eight, nine, ten feet tall people. And some people are interpreting it metaphorically, saying these are such mighty men, they're like giants. Like giant is a metaphor. Uh, you know, they're, they're so well known. They're men of renown. Uh, you know, it's like saying, um, if I seem taller than other men, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. You know, not like literal giants, but, you know, giants of the faith or giants Metaphor. of science. Or, right. Yes. I don't know, uh, honestly, what that term refers to, but I do think the sons of God, I, I have a few more thoughts about that because there again, how do we interpret sons of God? Is Is there a naturalistic explanation or a supernatural explanation? And let me see if I can represent both views accurately here. The supernatural view, let's start with that because it's a little more interesting, is that the sons of God are some kind of supernatural beings, whether fallen angels or I, I believe in Michael Heiser's view that these are the divine council, like not quite angels, but it's sort of like demigods for for lack of a better term okay I, I'm, so so it's the nomenclature or the classification system that some christian uh speculators authors hobbyists try to come up with uh, for things that god hasn't cared to share with us in scripture well and so this comes from the book of job which talks about sons of god in the supernatural sense and so is this what the writer of genesis is using We're not entirely sure the supernatural view is that these were supernatural beings that somehow impregnated human women and caused these children to be born who were physically giants. And then the naturalistic view is that the sons of God were the line of Seth and that the daughters of man were from the line of Cain. Because what we see in Genesis 4 is Moses, you know, the writer of Genesis, contrasting the line of Seth, which said he walked with God, you know, Enoch, he walked with God. They, they were sons of God. We, we see the phrase sons of God in Genesis 4, talking about Seth's line. And then we see Cain's line leading to idolatry, polygamy, violence, and, and other kinds of sin. And so that's the daughters of man. So we, we have the the children of God and the children of man. So the the supernatural element of this is that Seth's line walked with God and they knew God. And so what Genesis 6-4 is referring to is intermarriage between godly people and ungodly people. And the reason for this interpretation is that Moses is writing this to the Israelite people as they are taking possession of the land, and he's warning them against intermarrying with the non-godly people in the land. Uh, just to be really clear, when we talk about intermarriage, we're not talking about racial, ethnic intermarriage. We're talking about intermarrying with between godly and ungodly people, people who follow God and people who don't follow God, uh, because ethnically they're probably very similar. And especially when you go back to Seth's line and Cain's line, they're probably very identically ethnically similar. 
So why did this produce Nephilim? Why were they called that? Were they actual giants? Well, the naturalistic explanation can't really go into that. It's uh, it's just somehow that these were awesome warriors. So there, there's some kind of gaps, I feel like, with that theory. But the supernatural explanation that these were sort of angel-human hybrids, uh, I, I think there's some problems with that there because Jesus said, in the resurrection, we will be like the angels. We will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So I don't see how angelic beings can reproduce human offspring. I think to steel man the view that angels or fallen angels are involved here, I think they would say that, yes, angels are not supposed to do that, which is why it was so terrible that these angels did. Uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a view held by many reputable okay. Christians. That there, I think, is not a crazy view. Uh, and then they also tie it into some speculations about uh, whether there are particular angels who are kept in some kind of spiritual prison, uh, maybe to be proclaimed the gospel, not to get them saved, but maybe some kind of a, a goat move by Jesus when he descends to Sheol. You know, you get into some very interesting speculations there. Uh, I remember at least one commentator thought that, oh, maybe these are the critters that get released uh, in order to dry up the Euphrates or something in the book of Revelation. So, I mean, I've got my opinions about folks who are trying to, you know, go in and concoct all these fan theories, concoct, uh, assemble, that's a more neutral term, put together, discover, unearth uh, some of these um, trivia moments in the Bible, like some of these subplots that, I mean, my main point here is that scripture just isn't as interested in these things as we can be. And so that's why I approach this with some measure of caution and just a little uh, amusement maybe by, again, as we say in our, our uh, episode title, why some Christians are so curious about the Nephilim. Like, I'm curious long enough to do this show about it. And for that length of time, I find it very interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I go on with my life. Uh, Zach, <laughs> I think it's a great point that it's been a very human thing to be interested about the secrets of the past, uh, archaeological genres, uh, mystical backstories, things like that. We just saw the DC movie Black Adam the other night, which indulges in that uh, to a fault, I would say. Uh, the past is always this foreign planet uh, where they have the secrets of magic and they have the magic mineral and they have the you know demigod creature lying asleep for thousands of years. You've got basically a Nephilim type creature in that movie portrayed by Dwayne the Rock Johnson, uh, and it gets a little indulgent at times, and I was just okay with it. They kind of break the world. I don't like it when stories break the world with all their different uh, retcon theories about magical creatures from the past. Uh, it makes the supernatural activity of the present uh, seem relatively tame by comparison. And I think my main uh, concern about this topic is just, hey, whatever extent you uh, indulge in the theories or try to put together uh, those moments in the Bible, uh, don't break the world. Don't mess up the world building. Uh, don't make this uh, marginal thing the main thing over top of the gospel, which is absolutely the central plot line of the Bible. Uh, even going back to this, uh, this narrative about the flood, the main point here is not so much natural versus supernatural, but human versus supernatural. I, I want to read uh, at least first the account of the flood and pay attention to what's going on with the humans. Humans are rebelling. Humans are filling the earth with wickedness. There's nothing here about Satan or demons. Maybe that was going on, but the narrative doesn't care about that as much as it cares about making sure you know that human beings filled the earth with wickedness and violence. Uh, you can't look at back at that and go, well, we would have been okay if it wasn't for those lousy meddling Nephilim. Uh, <laughs> don't do that. Human beings are at fault and they are responsible. 
and thus they uh, had earned uh, the punishment of God uh, by way of a worldwide flood. I think a good rule of interpretation is use clear passages to interpret unclear passages. That's just good hermeneutics, yes. Yeah. By the way, I think both Michael Heiser and a critic of his that I've been listening to, Dr. Jordan B. Cooper, I think they would actually both say that, that this is a, a golden standard of hermeneutics. The problem is there isn't really a lot of passages about what does sons of God mean, and there's conflicting passages, of, as I've said. There's Genesis 4, which says sons of God is the line of Seth. There is Job, which says sons of God are supernatural beings. So which, which one is being used? Um, especially because Job is the supposedly older book. So would Moses have read Job? And which interpretation is Moses talking about there in Genesis 6? And, you know, there's a lot of things we can't be certain about. And so um, I think, yes, I, I think it's uh, I think it's OK to take either view here. I think the troubling thing is when that sort of view becomes so certain that it leads to a lot of other doctrines that can't really be supported under that. So during the pandemic, there was this woman that became that kind of went viral for a while because she was speaking against some of the COVID policies of that time. And then also she was a very strong believer, but then she had some theories about sort of demon spirit children that I remember this. Yeah. Yes, that's right. right. And so that, you know, that idea, you know, you mentioned what is it, incubi or or succubi or what are this kind of ancient idea? Yeah, of my- like, mythological sexual yeah. creatures that we can't say on a family show if we are a family show. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, you know, that view is still around today. And and I'm not trying to, you know, call this person out, but I'm just using her as an example of like that doctrine still exists today. And the defenders of that doctrine would say, hey, if we ignore this possibility, then we are opening ourselves up to danger. Like this could still happen to people now if you indulge in this kind of, you know, paganism or modern witchcraft or horoscopes or the Enneagram. Like, well, I don't know what the doorway is to this sort of thing happening, but you know, the, the more natural interpretation of sons of God would say, well, if you ignore that, if you reject that doctrine, then it leads to like a passivity, as I was saying. And and you've kind of said this too, that, well, what we see in Genesis 6 is the earth was filled with violence. And this is a very human activity. But there again, like, was the violence being inspired by these demonic entities? Are those still active in the world today? Who's to say? Like, it is, it's hard to know because this is, I mean, even Heiser's book is the unseen realm. And so, uh, so much of this is really hidden from view. So it's it's hard to create too strong of an interpretation, in my opinion. Right. And that's why, as I mentioned, this is a topic of marginal interest to me at best. Uh, if for no other reasons, then I want to be a pragmatist in the best possible sense. I believe not in solo scriptura, but in sola scriptura, God's word contains everything that we need for profitability, for growth to be like Jesus, uh, for our sanctification, for our salvation. Uh, obviously that God, the divine author behind all of this, didn't feel it necessary to put in uh, all these marginal notes about the Nephilim. Uh, if you want to know about them, you'll have to go elsewhere, and people do. I think that it's it's a niche interest, but you know maybe it needs to stay niche. Uh, maybe it, you not, not make a cottage industry out of it. I'll do respect to those who are uh, writing some books and having debates about it. 
But where do you need to go to find um, legends of the Nephilim? Well, you have to go outside the Bible. And that's where we will go in chapter two. Let's stop uh, first by our second sponsor for this episode. It is The Tethered World by Heather L.L. Fitzgerald. And I think this is a coincidence, but you may find Nephilim in this back cover description. They're throwing in alongside some other creatures, uh, which makes it far more interesting to me. For Sadie Larson, family dynamics look a little different. Parents with oddball occupations, normal. Five homeschooled siblings, one with autism, normal. Parents missing and claw marks on the family minivan, definitely not normal. Sadie discovers her mother's interest in Bigfoot, Nephilim, and other lore is more than a quirky hobby. Her family guards the tethered world, home to creatures that once roamed the Garden of Eden, not all of whom are friendly. To save their parents, the Larson siblings will have to leave normal far behind. That's The Tethered World by Heather L.L. Fitzgerald from Mountain Brook Fire. It's available in audiobook, ebook, and paperbacks. You can get those links in our show notes for episode 135 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right, we're going to dust off some dusty tomes or maybe that are a little newer than we'd like to think they are. Chapter two, where do we find Nephilim legends? Okay, kids, this is where it gets complicated. Let's do a quick review. Uh, Christians on this side of the Reformation accept 66 canonical books in our Bible. I wish it was 77 because that sounds more biblical, numerologically speaking, but 66, that's the number we get. Other Christians, though, I think they may mean well, but they seem to like to keep some extra books around for warmth. And floating around these uh, other, I I would say dubious books, uh, interesting but dubious, uh, is the Book of Enoch, which is outside the Protestant canon. Uh, And this book describes a parallel or expanded narrative about the flood, uh, including a bunch of other details uh, seeming to be about uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It's got lists of angels, maybe a divine council in there. Uh, It's got all kinds of wonderful uh, descriptions. Uh, If you're up into trying to figure out what's going on uh, in the spiritual dimension, it talks about uh, the angels. They are angels, it says, uh, that decided that those human women were looking pretty good. So they took them as wives. Hey, I'm glad they were at least wives and not something even shadier. And this is presented as an example of how the earth became corrupt. I think this is where you get the story started about Nephilim being fallen angels. I will say, though, that it is presented as a negative. There are some stories that just present the Nephilim more in a neutral way. The Book of Enoch, whichever Enoch this was, it is 100% bad. The way that I read that there, I was able to read over a few chapters while putting together the notes for the show. The exact phrase, by the way, uh, in one translation there says, quote, angels, comma, the children of heaven, end quote. And it does say they gave birth to giants. Uh, the angel-human-women uh, union gave birth to giants. It's all part of the sinfulness of man that's filling the earth, the fornication, the sorcery, and the godlessness. So if you want to know where this came from, it's not directly from Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Uh, It's not directly from the commentaries. It's by cross-referencing the Book of Enoch. Zach, have you read the Book of Enoch and this giant story, and what Enoch are we talking about here? Well, that that was going to be my point, is that there back to Genesis 4, there are two Enochs that we see. There's an Enoch that's the son of Cain, and that 
the whole city was built after like or named after Enoch, but then there's Enoch from the line of Seth, the one that walked with God for 300 years and then was sort of taken up to heaven. So which one was it? And was either one of them the one that wrote the book of Enoch? And if so, how did that survive the flood? Like did Noah have a copy of the book of Enoch on the ark? I, I think that's very much a possibility. I'm, I'm asking that honestly, uh, or was this written many, many years later? Uh, by someone else. Like, I, I don't know too much of the history of it. I, I do have a copy of it pulled up here in a browser tab, and I've, I'll, I'll put a link in the uh, show notes. I have heard bits and pieces from this before. I haven't read the whole thing. So can you tell me, like, who wrote it when and why people reject or accept it? Yeah, I, 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 I can't tell you. I will say that I don't think it was, I don't think it was the, the, the Cain line, uh, Enoch, because that's way too early in the history okay. uh, by the Genesis genealogy. I also don't see how that could be the Enoch, uh, the one who never died, like the prophet Elijah, of uh, the only two people in the Bible who are listed as having uh, never died, uh, because I think he would have been not dead and gone uh, by the time any of this stuff was happening. Certainly by the time that God judged the earth of the flood, Enoch was long gone by that time. Uh, if he had written any details in this book, someone else would have had to come along afterwards and fill them in later. Uh, Noah or somebody. We're just speculating here, folks. There's a reason this book is not in the canon of scripture uh, that we would accept. So I don't know who wrote Enoch. I'm comfortable saying that it's really good fan fiction. I, I don't know. Like I, that would not bother me. And that wouldn't even necessarily mean that it's bad. Uh, it seems to whoever wrote it seems to have been really wanting to present uh, God as righteous and humans as uh, as depraved here in the pre-flood days. Um, you can't really go wrong with that. Uh, like I'm comfortable with it being uh, a kind of fiction, but there's a complication there uh, as described by this article at uh, Answers in Genesis. See, we're in Genesis looking for answers. So of course, you need to go to Answers in Genesis. Now, they don't take any official position on Nephilim. I, I had that, saw that made very clear, uh, but they do have some resources about it. And you may disagree with it. Uh, you may find it challenging. Uh, there's a guy named Bodhi Hodge who wrote in one article, of course, all links in the show notes. He said, Paul and Christ warn us about Jewish tradition, and we need to keep in mind that the book of Enoch is not the word of God, but the words of fallible men. What this passage and the Septuagint do tell us is that people of those days believed the sons of God to be fallen angels. It is true that Jude 14 through 15, quick comment here, Jude is in, in the canon of the Bible. It's in the New Testament. Quotes from the book of Enoch, Jude 1, 9. But that simply means that the quote used by Jude was inspired of God as scripture. It gives no credence that any other verse in the book of Enoch is inspired. So is the book we have today really from pre-flood Enoch? It wasn't enough to make the canon of scripture. It mentions Mount Sinai, which shouldn't have existed until after the flood. And Enoch lived long before the flood. Rarely, if ever, do prophetic works reveal the future name of a place. That's what one uh, AIG source said, and I got a bunch more here, actually, from our friend uh, Tim Chafe, who's been on the podcast a few times. And spoiler alert, folks, uh, if you love you some Nephilim, uh, we're going to have uh, Tim Chafee on here, if he can make it, uh, to explore more in a future sequel to this series. Yeah, so just a quick uh, you know, scan of Wikipedia again, because I'm, I'm exploring this. It says that... Uh, Enoch or the book of Enoch was probably written around 200 BC or at least as early as that. It might've been written later, but 
there oh, are fragments of after it. after the flood. Yeah, yeah. Yes, wow. uh, but there are fragments of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it was written before, you know, it, it was written in the B.C. era. It possibly is back as far back as 300 B.C. The authorship seems a little unclear. All, all that to say, this was not a post, this was not an A.D. era Gnostic gospel, like the Gospel of Thomas or something right. like that. Right, so it like is it, older it, than that. It is a little bit more reputable. Right. Right, but was it written uh, however many thousands of years ago by Enoch from the line of Seth? Well, I, I think it might be kind of hard to make that case. So then it just kind of calls into question, well, how does, you know, what is the proof that any of this is true? You know, because it, it wasn't written by the actual Enoch. Right. I, I think maybe there's a lot riding on the word of there in the title. Uh, Song of Solomon was okay. almost assuredly not written by Solomon. It could be a book about Enoch, you know, by a later okay. author who had access to some resources that we don't. Like, I'm just uh, thinking out loud here, folks. I, I'm not a textual critic. I, I haven't gone into the origins there. Okay, so there are pieces of in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, that's interesting. And, and yet that doesn't bother me so much. It's not like ancient peoples only wrote certain books and they all made it into the Old Testament. Of course, there were other books. Uh, going back to David and his mighty men, uh, going back through the Old Testament, reading the Bible in a year. And I always appreciate uh, the, the meta notes about the record keeping uh, back then. That was one thing that David did. He was very literate. Uh, he had scholars, he had scribes, uh, he had clerics. Uh, they were all keeping records, and a bunch of the Old Testament books mention other Old Testament books, the records of the kings of Israel and the chronicles and all that, uh, to which we don't have uh, direct access. Yeah, and the odd thing here is that, as you said, Jude is quoting the book of Enoch. Yeah, that's weird. Always has been. <laughs> yeah, so we get this extra-biblical book being quoted in the Bible, and that can seem a little puzzling, but we also see the same thing in Acts 17 where Paul quotes yeah. the poets of the Greeks, as some of your own poets have said, in him we move, in him we live and move and have our being. So there we get a secular, you know, source being included in the Bible. Does that mean that that poet Paul was quoting is a biblical poet? Well, not really. It's just Paul just happened to quote it and Luke happened to record that conversation. And so I kind of look at Jude's, inclusion of the book of Enoch in the same way. It's just, he's referring to this, but, but again, he's sort of referring to it authoritatively. So it's a little different than what Paul did. It's different from Paul quoting the Cretan poets because Paul is quoting this as an example, as part of an evangelistic presentation. He's not saying uh, this poet was inspired. He's not saying, uh, and by the way, this is my authority here. It's more like, Hey, like even you guys admit this on, in your good moments. So, you know, maybe you can form a cultural touch point to what I'm saying. Yeah, here in the book of Jude, this is the text in which Jude says that that the archangel Michael was contending with the devil, disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And then later on, verses 14 through 15, uh, Jude quotes Enoch authoritatively, the seventh from Adam, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and so and so. So, yeah, he's acting like it's another book of the Bible. So, is it inspired by the Holy Spirit? Uh, there must be, I believe, some reason why we don't have it in our canon now, uh, and not just because things get a little weird uh, talking about a Michael versus devil boss fight about the body of Moses, of all things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Jude is quoting from the book of Enoch, chapter 1, verse 9, which says, And behold, he comes with 
ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness, which they have ungodly committed and of all the hard things, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then right after this, we go into, you know, all the other more speculative things in the book of Enoch about angels and women having children somehow. Yeah, it's it's weird, but it's not anti-biblical. It's not like a Gnostic gospel Mm -hmm. uh, where you have Jesus saying things that, you know, actual Jesus would never have said or taught. Uh, Enoch sounds like Bible here, which is why it's so weird reading it, because somebody's gone in, they've put verses in it and everything. And, and it's like uh, slipping into uh, Earth 2, where the canon is different, and there's some extra details in the Bible that weren't there before. Yeah, it seems like it's still accepted by the Ethiopian Church. Yeah, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church considers the Book of Enoch as canonical. So, okay. so there you go. And the Ethiopian right, well, Church is one of the oldest churches, so that's kind of right. interesting, too. And plus, to think they're about. secretly keeping the Ark of the Covenant, as that's has right. been well reported. We're not trying to be <laughs> crackpots or tease them. Uh, it just it gets a little weird, uh, and uh, it's good to explore just because, hey, it's part of church history uh, right up to the present. Uh, so that's why I don't mind you know, reaching out to folks uh, like uh, Tim Chafee I mentioned earlier. He actually wrote this to me uh, and it said I could share it. Uh, he had... Uh, uh, shared qu- quite an essay, actually. I reached out going, hey, what do you think about Nephilim? You know, uh, and then he uh, gave me a whole essay. So thank you, sir. Uh, we definitely want to have him on to talk about this. But here's what he says for now. Quote, I wrote a nearly 500-page book on the subject, Fallen, the Sons of God and the Nephilim. It includes a chapter near the end urging believers to avoid the fantastically speculative stuff. That, by that, by the way, interrupting uh, his quote here real quick, it doesn't mean don't read fantasy, you know. Tim is a brick of a person. He's not going to uh, shun that sort of thing. It's more about don't don't delve too deep into the, this stuff that people aren't really supposed to know and that isn't as important. You know, don't go off into the aliens and the uh, incubi and all that stuff. Anyway, resuming quote, I think it's important to teach the truth about the Nephilim, so it's good to correct the sensationalism that is often tied to it. At the same time, we shouldn't shy away what the Bible reveals about them, even if we aren't comfortable with the subject. There is actually quite a bit in the Bible on the topic, and Scripture clearly indicates that the Nephilim were the descendants of the sons of God, and he just says angelic beings and women. Nevertheless, this does not make them some sort of demon-slash-human hybrid, as is often imagined. They were still considered to be mighty men and men of renown, Genesis 6-4. They are described as large men in Numbers 13 as well, when the narrator tells us that the spies saw the Anakim, who are of the Nephilim, in the land. They were not aliens, urban fantasy critters, etc. How could they be the offspring of rebellious angels and women and still be fully human? I think there are several ways to answer this. It could be that the angels took human form to accomplish this feat, which I think is very likely given that they married the women. I think one could make a strong case that angels are also made in God's image. Try thinking of one attribute we cite about man being made in God's image that couldn't also be applied to angels. Given what we know of Christ's humanity, It could be that having a human mother is enough to qualify one as being fully human. Of course, in Jesus' case, his conception was not sexual or sinful in any way, whereas it would have been sinful and very likely sexual in the case of the rebellious angels and women. That's the end quote uh, from personal correspondence there. 
we got to get Tim Chavey's book, Fallen, the Sons of God and the Nephilim, 500 pages of Nephilim goodness. Hey, Zach, if the Nephilim turn out to have a supernatural origin like this, I'll not lose sleep over it. In fact, I'll be pretty happy uh, that God had to send a flood to take out these uh, evil uh, Andre the Giants uh, stomping around. Uh, the only thing I would add there is echoing Tim, like, let, let's uh, respond to this with wisdom and uh, proportionality. Uh, this is a cameo from these beings in the Bible. Uh, this is not a starring role for them. I'd be interested to have Tim on because I have a lot of questions from reading what he said. So he starts out by saying, let's avoid fantastically speculative stuff. Then he says, scripture clearly indicates Nephilim were from angels and, and women, you know, sleeping together. And to me, that seems pretty speculative uh, because it's, again, I think there are different interpretations of Genesis 6 and the sons of God. Well, can angels take human form? Can they well, that, incarnate? Yeah. Well, that, okay. So actually that I do agree with him. In Genesis 18, okay. we, we see the three angels appearing to Abraham as men, like he thinks they're just strangers, you know, and he, they need a meal. And so he's like, Oh, Hey, Sarah, quick, <laughs> make some bread, uh, which is a funny passage. Anyway, how, how do you make right. bread quickly? But, uh, anyway, but they, he feeds them. Then they go to Sodom and Gomorrah. They physically interact with that world. They, they physically take lot, grab him and then shut the door. And so they, they physically interacted with the world can they reproduce? I, that's the more speculative part because we're not really told one way or the other. And I lean towards that not being possible because of Jesus, you know, back to what Jesus said about in the resurrection, men will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like, they'll the be angels, like the yes. angels. So I, I take that to mean angels cannot reproduce. Right. Which is why, again, like the, these bad angels did and they weren't supposed to, at least so yeah. goes the theory, but I, I'm still stuck on the idea of an angel incarnating like it's a special thing that jesus christ could become man you know like there was a fixed yeah. point in space and time in which jesus became man the son always was he he is eternally existing that is basic trinitarian doctrine that all orthodox christians should not deny but there was a point in time when jesus became man and now he's locked in you know he didn't shed yeah. his physical form to become incorporeal again uh, he is still a physical man and God, 100% both ways to this day. But now you've just got angels just morphing into humans and then yeah, I, taking a I life. I look at now. it, I, I don't really know how to make sense of that either. But again, I, I don't think they actually put on flesh. I think it's more like some kind of force field or something that they surround themselves with that looks human because, well, first of all, we see an angel wrestling with Jacob and touching him on the hip and injuring him, but Jacob being able to restrain him. So they're right. able That's to physical. enter this, yeah. they're able to enter and interact with this world in a physical way. By the way, I know there's some people think that that was the pre-incarnate Christ. I was just that thinking, seems, yeah, you don't accept that it. seems like a, yeah, yeah it, that seems like a contradiction to me that the pre-incarnate Christ incarnated and wrestled with Jacob. Time but, travel, time travel. No, Jesus was doing some time yeah. traveling. Like that's 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 the fan theory. There is like, hey, Jesus didn't incarnate before he incarnated. He incarnated in the fixed point in space and time, you know, near year zero or whatever it was, uh, and then he does some time traveling. You know, going yeah, back into Israel's I, past I, and interacting, and you know, it's a paradox. <laughs> I, I I'm not buying it. I I think that's I don't know way if I buy it either. It's just it's yeah. kind of fun. Yeah, but I mean, you know, time travel opens up some things. Like yeah. even if you start thinking about. There's this old Victorian idea or this old early church idea, I forget when it starts, that 
when Christians die, they become angels. Like it's actually hinted at at one part of Dracula. And I pulled it out during the book quest and went, eh, you know, this isn't yeah. actually what the Bible says. Like humans are humans forever. Are angels angels forever though? Like that you mentioned like the force field, but okay, yeah. folks, like this isn't quite a family show, but it's very speculative. We're talking, it's a DNA <laughs> exchange here. If this, if the son of God was a, an angel who took human form, then this isn't an appearance or a force fields or perception management. Uh, there's a DNA exchange. <laughs> oh, no, no. So I, I, I'm saying that uh, th- there's something different about how angels physically interact with the world compared to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And, yeah. and, and, yeah. Th- and this is actually how I would. So this is my own analogy for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the way that Jesus incarnated is imagine a human trying to interact with the ocean world. He would have to become a fish to actually interact with other fish. But an angel, by contrast, would be like a deep sea diver that has to be, you know, encased in this suit with, you know, like a tube going back up. I'm I'm thinking of the really old-fashioned deep sea divers. The the diver himself doesn't actually physically touch that ocean, but like the suit around him does. And so I think that's kind of how angels, quote-unquote, incarnate into the physical world, is that they don't actually become humans, they have some sort of human representation in the same way that Ezekiel saw this weird, you know, wheel within wheel covered with eyes. And and there's just other various bizarre forms that angels take. I don't think they ever become physical. I think they are able to materialize some kind of physical barrier around them to interact with this world. And then that barrier just disappears somehow. I, I don't know how how else to describe it, but I think it's very different than how Jesus became a human because right. now, like you said, Jesus is locked in to humanity, whereas angels are always spirit beings and, but, but somehow they can solidify temporarily. Right. So I'm left in the difficult position of having promised that you and I would fight at the top of the show, but just <laughs> like any of those versus movies, it's not Godzilla versus Kong for very long because they both have to team up and fight Tim Chafee. I mean, uh, Mecha Godzilla. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm agreeing with you, brother. I, I think, I think we may be on the same side here. Like, no, I don't want to deny the supernatural. I mean, if, if the text is clearly hinting or stating outright that this is fallen angels, uh, that have somehow become human to take human women and give birth to giants. Like, I want to follow that as weird as it is. Hey, I'm a Christian. I should yeah, be used to right. the weird. But at the same time, I'm left with more questions like you. And the reason being is that if angels are appearing in human form and are interacting with the material world more like deep sea divers in the ocean and not like, you know, a fish, uh, it's it, you're stepping on Christ's territory there. Christ incarnated. That was a special event. Uh, you don't incarnate as an angel, even temporarily. It just, you know, put on the human suit and then take it off. But in, even if you did believe that, though, that wouldn't work, I'm thinking, for this whole Nephilim deal, because you've got not just, you know, an angel becomes a human and then lives with a human, you know, and they kind of live happily ever after, except for the fact that you, you know, left heaven and became fallen. Uh, you actually had um, physical relations that resulted in a child. That's a human thing that only humans can do because Jesus is clear that angels don't do that. But you could also say angels can't do that. I mean, that's my take because you've got to have like DNA. Like it, it seems to violate right. not just the moral created order, uh, but the very physical constraints of the created order. Yeah. And I, I think that this idea of a angel human hybrid 
is actually a Greek idea. This is how the Greek gods came about. And I don't, I don't know my mythology that well, but I believe it's, uh, isn't it Hercules is like the son of Zeus. Oh, I think, I, I think woman. half of, half of them were ghosts yeah, a lot of appearing them. as humans yeah. and then getting into trouble, uh, once they get down from Mount Olympus. But, but like Achilles, I think too, was like the, the hybrid of a God and a human. And so th- I don't think this is a biblical idea. I think it's actually a Greek idea. Well, that, I mean, would, uh, the book of Enoch author have known that though? Well, when was it you said that the speculation is that the book was written? Yeah, was 300 overlapping BC. With Greek? Well, yeah. could be. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, there's always been some interfacing between Greek philosophy uh, and Hebrew uh, belief there mm-hmm. at the at the very end. And a lot of people who want to unhitch from the Old Testament, you know, they make way too much hay out of that. But in this case, yeah, maybe you have, you know, maybe you have some fan fiction. I don't yeah, know. And- Especially because there's precedent for it. There are legends in the Bible about the Nephilim, the mighty men, the giants, you know, they must have uh, spooked the Israelites because uh, you don't get normally folks that tall. And Goliath is described as being very tall, but he's not like, a, you know, Jack the Giant Killer giant, you know, he's like 60 stories tall. Uh, he's not attack on Titan, colossal Titan giant. Uh, he's more like, you know, like, well, not, not Shaquille O'Neal, but may- maybe 10 feet tall, you know, uh, like a guy in the Guinness Book of World Records tall. You know, so I mentioned the Greek pantheon is sort of a a possible you know heretical origin for this idea the other troubling connection here is that this whole idea of nephilim as angel human hybrids it's very gnostic in the sense of like secret knowledge and that's kind of how the book of enoch was written it's like here's this secret that no one else knows and i and i think having that approach to scripture like here's what all of church history got wrong yeah genesis 6 that makes me very uncomfortable uh, because we see a lot of other heresies spring up even today that have this sort of mentality of like, here's what no one else knows. Now, again, it, maybe that's not what defenders of the Nephilim idea are saying. And I, and I invite comments on this. Uh, maybe it is an interpretive miss that we are making in our Western materialistic mindset about the sons of God and what all of that means or, you know, the divine council and, and so forth. It's like, on one hand, Stephen, I don't want to overemphasize human tradition and even interpretive tradition in the church. But on the other hand, we do have to be careful about new ideas that seem to come from nowhere that could be very prone to other errors. But we're talking about really weird things, no matter what it is. I mean, can it, yeah. How do angels interact with us? You know, we're, we're, that's what we're differing at. We're differing yeah. on a really weird thing here. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's another episode and, and really gets into, yeah. Angelology or whatever the word yeah. is like, what, what is going on out there? Are there guardian angels? And you know, is there one angel for every Christian? Do angels protect unbelievers? I mean, that's kind of basic uh, Christian apologetics podcast stuff and not necessarily fantastical truth stuff, but maybe it needs to be, I don't know. Um, I haven't thought about that for quite a while because angels are kind of 1990s evangelical culture. Uh, they're not so uh, not so widespread in our in our popular culture uh, as they once were. Uh, Zach, as you mentioned my articles about the Nephilim. I uh, wrote one in 2013 saying I've just reached my fill of the Nephilim, uh, which was itself a sequel to another article I wrote called Story Shutdowns, where I just came clean about. Uh, the many examples of Christian fantasy books I'd been seeing in their back covers and saying, okay, you know, I'll, I read a lot of back covers. I try to keep up with this uh, market. Uh, but if you mention this in the back cover, peace out. I don't want to read it. Uh, <laughs> just 
Now, I don't, I'm not talking about uh, any books that sponsor the show. Obviously, it just happened to name check Nephilim. Uh, it's more of like if your whole book is about Nephilim and it's about, oh, here's the secret history before the flood. Like, oh, I don't mean your book is heretical or false teaching. It's just I feel like I've read it before because uh, I got my fill of the Nephilim uh, in a series in the mid 2000s called the Cradleland Chronicles, which I really liked, even though the third book went really weird spaceships before Noah's Ark. I'm not kidding. That's in the book. Uh, we'll try to link to that in the show notes. Uh, man, I'd love to talk with that author sometime. I think he's still around. But here's what I wrote in that 2013 article. And let's see. I mean, I may disagree with it later, if not now. Uh, listener, you might disagree with it. But right now, I'm feeling agreeable with myself. I said, Genesis 6 only touches on the Nephilim. It's like a postscript. And by the way, if you have heard about the Nephilim, well, they were here too. Scripture says they were there and also afterward. So after the flood? Was Nimrod, Genesis 10, 8, a mighty hunter before the Lord, also a Nephilim? This seems to rule out worse demonic activity that the flood did destroy. If the demonic Nephilim only popped up again post-flood, God's judgment for that evil failed. Speculators make much of verse 1's phrase, sons of God, but that need not refer to angels who sinfully took human women. It could mean simply men. And later we also read what is surely a clearer definition of Nephilim. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Demons. It must be about demons. No, Nephilim could be a warrior tribe. Let's avoid insisting that Nephilim equal demons beyond all doubt and then parade any evidence from either the Book of Enoch. It's fascinating, but isn't in canon or elongated fossil skulls. End quote from me. Uh, Zach, I think that last bit is in reference to... um. Uh, shall we say the more speculative archaeology that you get in YouTube videos and some stray Facebook comments. Uh, there's a lot of folks who want to find, yeah, the secret knowledge buried in the dirt that the modern uh, archaeological scientific tradition with our materialism has suppressed. And then you do get into some of the weirder sides of the UFO fan community, aliens among us, crystal skulls, you know, bad Indiana Jones movies. Uh, it can take us further into uh, yeah, kind of like you said, Zach, maybe not heresy, but certainly it smells like Gnosticism. It smells like wanting to get bored uh, with the gospel and the emphasis on scripture that we have and go off uh, chasing theories uh, based on the commentary at best. Wow. Let's go to sponsor three, uh, which is not about Nephilim, but is about uh, Pilgrims making progress. It's David Umstadt, author of the Pilgrims Progress Reloaded. You have to go to the show notes to see uh, this rather boss cover of this artwork. Pilgrims Progress is a classic story of redemption, allegory, and theological poignance that has profoundly impacted millions of readers over three centuries and changed the landscape of English literature forever. It's also a story with a total lack of robots, space marines, or talking platypuses. So we fixed that. You're welcome. Pilgrims Progress Reloaded is a narrative podcast you can listen to on the podcast app you're using right now. Just search for Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded to start listening for free. You can find that aforementioned boss cover and the links at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors or find the links in the mention atop our show notes for episode 135 for the Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded. All right, this has gone on long and tall and large, just like a Nephilim. Let's move to chapter three. What Nephilim do we find in fiction? 
And I've been trying to restrain myself because otherwise we would uh, allow violence to fill the earth and we don't want a Genesis 6 all over again. Here's the part where I really go off if I'm not careful. I mentioned that the Nephilim make a cameo at best in the Bible, uh, and yet uh, their influence seems uh, larger. The renown of those mighty men continues, at least in Christian-made fiction. And I, I mentioned, I think earlier, Zach, that this is a job hazard for me. Uh, I imagine you may not, the faithful listener, have seen this as much, but I, I feel like I've seen Nephilim on a lot of back covers. And not a mention, uh, but just uh, books wholly about the creatures. Uh, there's a whole subgenre about uh, books that are set before the flood, for example. Uh, I've, I've been surprised. I remember back, it was actually the mid-2000s that I, of course, had the amazing idea, wow, you know what? We don't know what it was like before the flood. Like, what if somebody could write a, a fantasy series set before the flood? You know, come up with some fun technology, have some dinosaurs and dragons and things. Uh, and then maybe do something weird about the Nephilim. Well, it turns out that uh, basically I think every Christian fan <laughs> had decided to come up with that. And now we have maybe dozens of uh, these series, uh, at least listed in the Lorehaven library, uh, a bunch of them. Uh, it's basically a subgenre, and there's even a book tag in the library for Nephilim. They're so common, they have their own book tag. So you can go to our show notes and click that, and you can find uh, all of the pre-flood fiction that we know about, uh, probably with the book tag for Nephilim as well. Uh, I have not read all these books. Uh, a lot of them sound pretty similar. Uh, it's set in a pre-flood world. There's fantasy. Uh, there's uh, demons uh, doing chicanery. Uh, there's fallen angels uh, intermingling with humans. Uh, there are giants, most likely. There are warriors. There are men of renown. Uh, and there's probably some conspiracy and some fun technology. And I really can't complain. Like I said, I haven't read it, all of those series because there's so many of them. Uh, the one series that I have read is called the Cradle Land Chronicles. That was the first one I discovered. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, it's it's the only one I know about. Uh, its author was named Douglas Hurt. And back then, uh, that series blew my mind. I, I felt disappointed that someone stole my idea. But no, it's just that everybody had the idea all at once. And he got to it first. And uh, hey, it's a good series. Like it's kind of pulp fantasy. There's a little Peretti flair because, of course, uh, you have to have some angels showing up, uh, behaving a bit like Peretti angels or a proto version of them uh, before the flood. Uh, you've got Lamech uh, as main character. His wife is also a main character. That's Noah's dad, by the way. Spoiler alert. Uh, you've got some side appearances by Methuselah. Uh, you've got a, a, a loyal uh, military captain who's working for the bad guys. Uh, you've got kind of this uh, pre-flood Aragorn type uh, guy. I mean, I, I would love to do a show uh, just about this series. I haven't read it in a long time, but it was really fun. And book three actually had a spaceship on the cover. I'm not making this cover up. But now, yeah, there's a lot of books that have similar premises by Christian authors. Like, not heretical. You know, I don't think they're delving too deep. I don't know them. I don't know their motives. It's just fun to speculate. Uh, and it's probably more biblical if you're going to have Nephilim in a book to go to the pre-flood world because that's where they're mentioned in the Bible, whoever or whatever they turn out to be. Uh, I guess the thing that bothers me more is modern stories, like kind of the paranormal stuff, a lot of it from non-Christian authors that will name check the Nephilim or do something weirder uh, with the title. Uh, and then they go into like kind of uh, a legitimate angel human union uh, complete with the trope of the angel who decides to become human and it seems perfectly okay with god and then you go in the direction of angels just being basically humans who fly around in heaven and that's not how the bible portrays angels and i i don't think that has anything to do with the biblical nephilim 
So I am reading a book right now. It's a, a trilogy, actually, and it's science fiction. I don't know if I should give the title because I'm going to kind of go into spoilers a little bit here, but uh, it's a fascinating trilogy. It actually quotes from Genesis 6-4 that we've read about there were you know Nephilim in those days and also afterwards. Uh, but the giants that are in this story are robots, and they are piloted by these alien human hybrids, I guess. And so we, we've sort of got the hybrid thing going on, but the robots were on the earth thousands of years ago. They were brought there by an alien species that was part of a galactic empire, but it's like humanoid aliens, not, not totally like little green men, but, but basically humans with backwards working legs. And, uh, and instead of DNA, it's, um, another kind of compound called ANA. I forget what the A stands for, but it's like a very different genetic makeup than, than how humans are made of DNA. But the aliens intermingled with humans and then uh, created these hybrids, but they, they appear human like everyone else. But there's something unique about their, uh, their genetics that allows them to pilot this robot. So, that, so they find these robots buried in the ground. And there's only certain people who are able to pilot them like in the present day. Then they have to battle against the aliens who come back with one of their robots. Uh, and so it's a really fascinating story. It's sort of a mystery story. That's why I don't want to give away the title. But if, if you start reading this book, like I, I would love to chat with any of our listeners that read it because it's it's a cool story. Like, And it's a different spin on the, the Genesis uh, 6-4 that the you know, that the sons of God in this case are not angels. There's no supernatural element to this, but they are aliens from a uh, much more sophisticated, intelligent race. So is this a Christian-made book or is it a secular market book? It's a secular market book. I, I don't know anything about the author. I'm still kind of learning about him. So I, I think the reference to Genesis is sort of a little tongue-in-cheek. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he's not saying these are the Nephilim. It's just, it's kind of inspired the idea. Right. Sounds like yeah. to me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in the Christian market, you get, I don't know, at least the impression I've gotten is that folks really do want to speculate on the biblical Nephilim. And if you're going into a pre-flood fiction, hey, I'm all for it. You know, even if I don't personally have time to read every single uh, take on it. And by now they just don't seem all that original to me. Again, that's just personal preference. The, the issue I have is when you go into more like the paranormal romance type thing, that's where you get into the weird stuff. Even if you read the book of Enoch, even if you read uh, the Christian made fantasy series, it's not good for fallen angels. If that's what they are to intermingle with human women, uh, it's part of the corruption of the earth. And I think that rules out some urban fantasy trope about the handsome angel uh, who uh, comes to earth and becomes human and falls in love. And then, oh, no, he's got to go off to heaven or something like I'm, I'm trying to steel man this here. I realize it's a fun speculation, but I, I don't think it's I don't think it's biblical. Yes, the paranormal romance between humans and angels is uh, is quite the trope in the last 20 or so years of fiction that I've. I've looked into, I, I've been looking into this topic a lot lately because I want to see what are some of the other books about angels and humans interacting. And so much of it seems to be this weird romance and I'm not really interested in that. But there was a movie in 1998 uh, with Nicolas Cage called City of Angels. 
You and your Nicolas Cage movies, my friend. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's always showing up here in the Lorraine <laughs> studios. Yes. Uh, I mean, he's in basically every movie that <laughs> he's in just so many roles, but uh, he plays an angel in this movie. And his main responsibility is to help kind of usher people into the, uh, the afterlife after they die. And so he sort of appears by people's beds, you know, bedside if they're in the hospital and they can see him. And then that means they're about to die. His character's name is Seth, interestingly enough. So Seth falls in love with this heart surgeon named Maggie, played by Meg Ryan. Maggie has a patient who's about to die, who's a human, but used to be an angel but decided to fall to the earth to become mortal and convinces Seth that he should do this also to live with the woman he loves. So Seth uh, jumps off a building or something and that's how he becomes mortal. And then he you know, has to live the human experience and it's painful and awful. Uh, but then finally he's with the woman he loves and you can guess that part. But then tragically uh, she dies <laughs> and then she is met by the angel that, uh, or one of the angels that Seth talks to at the beginning of the story. So there's kind of some irony there. And then Seth has to sort of live alone now as this uh, lovesick human who, who doesn't have the woman that he fell to earth for. So it's really a tragic romance. It's sort of Romeo and Juliet-ish. It's sort of lame. It's like, th- this is why at an immortal being would decide to fall and. So it, it's sort of a different take again. It's like, it, it's not that he's falling to earth to tempt people. Like, you know, we see the demons or possess people uh, like, like we see in the new Testament. It's just, Oh, he's just lovesick and wants to be with this woman that he really admires. I remember at the end of this movie, it's like he's body surfing. <laughs> and, so, and, and this is like now the pinnacle of his existence just to feel the ocean because apparently he couldn't feel anything. He had no, sensory you know input before that so now it's oh he's so happy because he's body surfing and that's that's where it ends it's very uh i don't know it's very unsatisfying i remember i remember watching this uh back in high school but they don't produce children i guess uh she dies a spoiler alert so we don't see any nephilim come from this but we do see that whole angels intermingling with with women kind of thing and so you know i don't really know what what's going on in this i with this whole subgenre of paranormal romance, as you call it. But I, I guess it's sort of like this idea of the perfect man out there, like, you know, literally being a perfect being, except for the whole falling part. <laughs> well, I, I kind of want to channel our friend Parker J. Cole here, who would point to uh, the, the God-given origins of that impulse. Like, yes, you do crave, you know, especially if you're a woman and disclaimer, neither of us are women. I don't care what the courts say. Uh, we never will be no matter what we say. You cannot talk about romance without talking about, you know, where it starts with good impulses. Yes. Humans are made to want companionship. They're made to seek the perfect and know that we are not perfect. And, uh, as Christians, we believe that we only find that desire fulfilled, not in a happy marriage, although that's great too, uh, but in union with Christ, not the individual union with Christ, but the individual union with the church uh, the symbolic bride uh, to whom Christ is and will be united. So that's a good impulse there. Uh, I see that redirected uh, and possibly corrupted by like even cheesy Hollywood movies with Nicholas Cage uh, or even, you know, older movies. Cause there's, you know, angels running around looking like Bing Crosby back in the black and white days, you know, angels becoming human or acting like human. Like that's movie stuff. I'm not saying it's evil. I'm just saying it's movie stuff. Uh, Zach, you mentioned that it's probably some Greek mythology stuff. 
Uh, it, it's not Bible stuff. And if it is, it seems to have been one freak occurrence, uh, barely alluded to in Genesis 6, and may be fleshed out by extra canonical literature like the Book of Enoch. It's something that is of curiosity to Christians, but uh, let's just keep it, I think, to, well, that's interesting. But uh, let's move on now and talk about how we are to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and everything we do now that he saved us from our deadness and sin. Now, that's the main point of the Bible. Now, I mean, every story has to focus on that. Uh, but at least for me, when your story focuses on uh, God's supernatural salvation and changes in human beings in the physical world, whether it's fantasy or sci-fi or paranormal or whatever, that's the kind of story I like. Uh, whereas a book uh, can endorse, I think, in a reader, if you're focusing on fallen angels and redefining these as not just angels becoming demons once upon a time, but angels just turning into humans. I, I think that may, may minimize uh, the import that scripture places on humanity, on human nature. And certainly it may minimize the, the importance of human sin uh, if you're saying that, uh, well, we would have been okay back then before the flood if it wasn't for those uh, dastardly Nephilim. The point of Genesis is to focus on human rebellion, not Satan or demons. Uh, and we actually, oh, by the way, Zach, I can uh, I can pre-pitch our article we have coming up, kind of a remix of an older piece about Twilight coming up. Now, Twilight does a little yeah, of this. I was thinking accounts. of that. Yeah. 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 So we're actually, we're, we're doing an incidental tie-in here. Uh, the, uh, the, the sparkly vampire as that ancient creature, perfect man who might tear you apart if you don't domesticate him first, you know, it's kind of a template. Uh, and, uh, that goes back to a rather ancient human longing. Like you said, Zach, to meet the perfect uh, creature that may have come from heaven, you know, did it hurt when you fell from heaven? You know, the pickup line. I think the main issue I have here is like, I, I want to trust our audience and I want to trust Christian fandom and act in good faith. Uh, even if, you know, your pet idea about Nephilim seems a little weird, just be aware, um, and this affects me, uh, if not you, just be aware that sometimes uh, outside Christianity, at least in areas that have been tainted by certain uh, conservative or evangelical subcultures, you will encounter people who go way too far with the Nephilim and aliens thing and the conspiracy secrets thing. I think that's why the Da Vinci Code took off so well, even in evangelical areas, because it purported mm -hmm. to reveal some secret books or secret idea of the gospel that they hid from you, you know, very clickbait premise there. Uh, and such folks who get into this seem absolutely incurious about gospel reality. Uh, they don't seem to care about the main story of the scripture. Uh, they want to get involved with what's going on in the margins. Uh, I mentioned in my old article, like nine years ago, I had a manager at a pizza hut once who, if he ever wanted to talk about anything related to the Bible, all he cared about was the Nephilim and the aliens. That's all he cared about. And I'm going, dude, like scripture says that you apart from Christ are dead in your transgressions and sins. And you were made for a purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever uh, in perfect union with your creator, you know, repent, be baptized, join the church, receive the gospel, love Jesus more than your sin. That's the main point. Uh, when I was working at a, a Christian bookstore, uh, there was a guy who wandered in. He wanted stuff about the conspiracy secrets that he'd heard about was in the Bible. Like, did he want to get a, a Bible? Did he want to get a great commentary about the Bible? Uh, did he want to retent, repent and receive Jesus? No, he wanted to know about the weird trivia stuff in the Bible. Uh, and that, that, that just disturbs me. 
that because that to me seems like the devil is being too clever by half. Yes, yes, Earth citizen, uh, chase after the secrets of the Bible, the secrets about ooh, what the bad old devil did back in the uh, pre-flood days. You know, let's chase after the aliens and the demons and the Nephilim. Let's just ignore Jesus. Oops, did I say the quiet part out loud? Uh, you know. End devil paraphrase there. Uh, that's the main warning I would have here. And I go back to actually a Facebook comment I quoted way back then where I said, I've seen so many people go off the rails into late night conspiracy radio type stuff. I swear the amount of times I've had people act as if antediluvian fallen angel slash human sex, aliens, weirdness, demons, all that stuff was the point of the Bible rather than the one true God who came himself to set humans free from their own slavery to sin. Ugh. I see this only as a distraction from the true gospel into plain mysticism. So that's probably the most negative I'll be about the whole thing here. Uh, Zach, um, I'm not trying to ignore uh, parts of the Bible, no matter how minor. I just want to keep the minor and make the main hero the main hero. Yeah, I think the danger with this is is taking it so seriously, even in fiction, that it sort of consumes you. And like like you said, with the Pizza Hut manager or the other guy that came in the bookstore, it's it just became this monofocus that they had. And the weird thing here, Stephen, is that I find myself drawn more to, towards the sci-fi trilogy I'm listening to because he doesn't really seem to take the whole tie into Nephilim so seriously when the character quotes Genesis six is sort well, of just the maybe quoting Dante or something like, Oh, yeah. here's a mythological thing I'm throwing in here for decoration. Right. And as I've read a little bit about this author, the reason as it's, I'm quoting from Wikipedia, the idea for the book first came to him when his son asked him to build a toy robot, not just any toy robot. He wanted one with an extended backstory. <laughs> So, I mean, that was the whole reason. Just, I want to write a really fun story for my son, not like I want to prove the secrets of the universe. <laughs> so the, you know, the reference to Genesis six in this book, uh, was sort of just, okay, here's just some way to make it make sense. Not like, uh, here's my doctrinal thesis on the sons of God, because I, I think what happens when you start to take this too seriously is either it becomes a worship of humanity or it becomes a denigration of humanity. Oh, great point. Even with that, you know, Nicolas Cage movie, the city of angels, if you take that too seriously, it's like, wow, humans are so special that an angel would give up mortality to be with one, even just for, you know, a few <laughs> days or whatever. And so that, that's a really weird worship of, of human nature. And then, you know, uh, now the angel is so satisfied because he can feel the ocean while he body surfs. The other reaction towards this is sort of this denigration of humanity where humans are not special until we intermingle with angels and produce these hybrid Nephilim and those are the real warriors and the mighty men. And that's, that's how we're going to take back America or we're going to take back the world or stop the aliens is by having these hybrids. Like if you take that so seriously, it's, it, then you end up kind of hating the Imago Dei. The interesting thing to me is that, you know, there is one theory about angels and humans that I kind of gravitate towards. It's that the angels were jealous of the attention God gave to humans, and that's part of what made them rebel. And, but we see uh, in the, uh, I think it's in Jude, or is it in, um, man, I, I just lost my reference for this. We know that humans will judge angels. There's a reference to that in one of the epistles. I, I thought it was Jude, but maybe it's Paul that talks about that. 
And so it sort of flips the script is that in the beginning, we see angels present at uh, various Old Testament events and they're either helping God's people or they're leading them astray. But then in the after the end times, we see that humans are ascending to this new state, resurrected bodies, and we are going to judge angels and sort of have the authority that they used to have. And I, I don't know if that's, we're just judging the fallen angels, I would assume, not the good angels. Did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, that verse is First uh, Corinthians 6, 3. Do you not know that ah, we are okay. to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Again, it seems to be the Bible treating angels as not an afterthought, but just, yeah, I know. By the way, there's this thing about angels, but how much more are we to focus on matters pertaining to life? It seems to be the, uh, the overarching theme of how the Bible reacts to these supernatural realities. Well, we know there's probably a lot more opinions out there than just the two of ours about Nephilim. So if you have a comment about today's episode, please send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com. And let's open the comp station to hear a comment from our last episode, 134, about Mad Scientist. Uh, Daniela Faith 63 commented and said, quote, just listened. This made me recall an article about a scientist who was talking about genetically modifying children before they're born. There's a sci-fi movie called Gattaca that tries to explore how this would affect society. And it is a disturbing picture, end quote. And yes, I love the movie Gattaca. My sister loves that movie. Uh, my, my sister and I have talked about that movie so many times because, you know, what if you're one of the people who's not genetically modified? How would you fit into this society? There's a really neat moment in that movie where there's this concert pianist that's just this maestro. And he has six fingers instead of five. Uh, and they, the characters realize this because he throws his glove into the crowd. And so it's sort of like making this point that, oh, this imperfect person who has this defect, uh, it turned out to be his superpower. And of course, the movie is about the main character who was not genetically modified, unlike his brother. And he's tried to fit in. He's tried to get a job with the space program and had to overcome all these hurdles. Uh, and yes, it would absolutely stratify society if we enter a world like that. So I, I hope we never do. And th that is one of the main reasons why we have sci-fi, as is, is Ray Bradbury said, to prevent the future, not to predict it. And so we would love to hear your comments about Nephilim and, and all that. So send us a note or tag us on social media. Just look for Lorehaven on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I might send a note because I'm still shivering here after Zach's alt-right fever dream QAnon fanfiction earlier in which he supposed <laughs> that people would have Nephilim to take back America. I, I know we're moving into election season, but I think that just goes a little too far, and I find that scarier than any of the Nephilim. So please don't buy into that stuff. Uh, and if you do, y'all need Jesus and probably some therapy and no more internet for the next 25 years. So... <laughs> I'm just saying no one's tried it yet, right? It, it's the election strategy we, that we haven't can, seen. Can we not? Uh, you know, I <laughs> may even go for some beliefs of militant fecundity, and I'll look that up <laughs> if you want to, but not when it involves a Nephilim. Uh, by the way, you mentioned this guy with six fingers on his hand from this other movie I've never seen. Well, there's another Nephilim because there's a giant mentioned later on that has six mm. fingers on his hands, uh, which also, by the way, would mean that uh, Count Rugen. Uh, from oh. the Princess Bride uh, is one of Another the Nephilim. Another tie-in. I mean, they're everywhere. Just add Nephilim and the story gets better. Which just leads me to say about the word Nephilim, <laughs> Nephilim, Nephilim, Nephilim. Stop <laughs> saying that. 
Now we've just looped completely around. By the way, speaking of the comm station, you, yes, you almost certainly commented about the Nephilim. I can just look in the future uh, and see that you're going to say something about that. In fact, uh, my guess is you probably have this idea right now for a whole biblical fantasy novel about the fiends. Uh, let us know. Uh, give us an email, like Zach said, or tag us on the social feeds. We're going to have a lot on our social feeds coming up here, by the way, Zach, as we move in toward the end of Monster Month here. So meanwhile, at Lorehaven, I think, and the week of this episode released, yeah, we have something new every day at the site. Always nice when we can pull that off. You subscribe free at lorehaven.com, get all of the updates that you need. First up, uh, we're closing out the Dracula book quest, uh, another story about uh, ancient creatures who do evil things. Uh, in the Lorehaven Guild. That's our uh, exclusive Discord server. Next up, uh, we are starting a book quest for the Wingfeather Saga, book one, On the Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness. So even though we're moving out of October, there's still some darkness around. Lots of people love that book, and Elijah David's going to lead the book quest. Uh, if I'm on my game, we'll have those details up uh, the day before this podcast releases. So that should be at lorehaven.com. Uh, also, on Wednesday, we're going to have that promised article about Christian paranormal thrillers. You can find the light in the darkness through six of those that we've chosen. I uh, actually wrote a couple more reviews of some of the paranormal thrillers that I've enjoyed, so you'll see those in there. On Thursday, I already set this up, too. Speaking of vampires and ancient perfect creatures and paranormal romance, uh, my friend Amy Timko, a long time ago, we uh, collected some of her reviews for another series. Uh, and we're republishing that with a few edits. Yes, the Twilight Saga vampires are scary, but for all the wrong reasons. That's the title. We're going to look back on this fandom. Try to be nice, but also there's some major relationship dysfunction in uh, that book uh, series that has not gone away. Maybe that affected you. Maybe that affected your friends. If so, might be great to do a little review there. And speaking of reviews, on Friday, uh, we're having a retro review double feature uh, already set up uh, the Friday before Halloween. We're exploring uh, two books by Christian paranormal thriller writers that I have uh, loved. Uh, by the way, spoiler alert, one is Frank Peretti and the other is an author that I still really enjoy, even though he hasn't been around for a while. Mark Schooley from back in the classic Marcher Lord Press days. That was the proto on Enclave Publishing. So we're going to review those two books. And then coming up in November, uh, Zach and I are starting a new series for this very podcast, um, Exiting Monster Month and Entering Dystopian Doom. It may have something to do with the rather dystopian feelings that we may have, at least for the American election season. And that'll tie in with some other articles that we will have at lorehaven.com. Next on Fantastical Truth. We have defeated all the monsters, the zombies, vampires, mad scientists, and Nephilim. Thank God. No more creatures left to slay. Even as we head into November in the United States in an even-numbered year, no more monsters, just elections and politics. And is this an improvement? Of course, we're kidding ourselves. Probably not. But I think we're also kidding ourselves if we try to ignore these realities about our world. So to start our next series, Dystopian Doom, we're going to ask a different sort of question. That's because started noticing this not too long ago, but previously evangelical subcultures had them some fads about spiritual warfare, prairie romances, angels, Amish romances. And then eventually for a while there, we had some adult coloring books starring small boys who have afterlife visions. 
I almost look back on all of those with some fondness because now the evangelical subculture has been taken over by another trend, and that trend is politics. Not dissing it, just observing it. And I'm going to ask, when did this happen? Why did this happen? What are the pros and cons? And how can Christians who want to see fantastical stories maybe put the politics back in their appropriate place? Meanwhile, put Nephilim in their appropriate place. They're interesting. They're definitely a subject of curiosity. Even if you believe weird things about them, maybe the weird things are biblical and it's fun to think about them. That doesn't make you a heretic. That doesn't make you weird. The Bible's full of weird stuff. Just make sure you focus on the non-weird central plot line of the Bible. The Bible's not about angels and Nephilim and weird secret knowledge. It is about Jesus come to save his own, to redeem a bride for himself. Not in a weird uh, fallen angel, human uh, woman marriage, but in the ultimate marriage, Christ united with this church forever. That's the main point of the Bible. That's the plot line we should follow as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>